I want to welcome you guys here. Really uh, glad that you're here uh, on this cold day. Uh, I do, uh, before I get started, um, I want to thank uh, Jesse uh, Orm and Seth Monette, who kind of have preached the last couple weeks. And uh, this is something I've been uh, thinking about and and praying about a lot, this idea uh, that a lot of people are talking in kind of Christian circles about the kind of impending pastoral cliff that's coming, uh, that the average age of the pastorate keeps getting higher and higher and higher, and uh, new people aren't necessarily uh, going into this line of work the way that they used to. And uh, I just, I love having our pulpit available uh, for guys that are kind of getting their preaching legs under them to come up here and uh, begin preaching more and more. Uh, This was a gift that was given to me uh, by a man named Ray Merritt and Rick Stacey, Uh, that when I was very, very young, just getting my legs under me, uh, they provided me time in a pulpit to begin to develop as a preacher. Uh, And I've always been uh, grateful uh, for that. And um, I'll be 48 this week. Uh, So I'm not a young preacher anymore. I I accept this. It was hard a few years back to realize this. Uh, I'm not, you know, a young guy. uh, But uh, I love these, uh, these, these two guys that preached are getting their legs under them a little bit, and we get to be a part of their journey and their story. So uh, I'm grateful to be able to play that role uh, now. Um, And I also just want to clear something up uh, based on some conversations I had this morning that I was raised in Michigan. I'm not insane, though. (laughs) Those are different things. I know it's cold, okay? So, yeah, I, I was not raised in these temperatures either. You just, I grew up six hours from here. All right, that's it. Yeah, so it's cold. I accept it's cold. All right, so, and I agree it's cold. I'm not insane. I just grew up in Michigan. That's all the only, all right, right? So it is cold. Uh, We're glad you're here online. We're we're glad you're here. I know there's a lot of you online. I I looked at those numbers earlier too. So uh, we're we're glad you're joining us uh, this morning. So um, today, uh, Seth introduced this, uh, did a great job last Sunday. And uh, I'm going to do the last two weeks of of this series. And this week and next week, it all kind of feel like one kind of sermon put together. Uh, Even though they're two different sermons, they're going to tie into one another. And we're just going to begin to talk about how change comes, how real and lasting change comes. And then we are going to start a long series after that uh, called The Big Ten. And we are going to look at the ten stories that appear in all four Gospels. Believe it or not, with all the content of the Gospels, there's only 10 that appear in all four. And so we're going to look at those, and that'll take us all the way through Easter. So, all right, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. All right, Lord, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. I'm just uh, grateful this morning uh, for Seth and Jesse as uh, they're learning about preaching and and preaching more and more sermons, uh, that you will continue to give them a heart for preaching and develop them. Uh, I want to thank you for our worship team this morning uh, that led us just in a great, a great time of worship of you. Uh, and I pray that I um, uh, would not screw up this service and how great it's been so far. So that you would just uh, speak through me and speak through your word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. 
Amen. I signed up years ago uh, to get this study one time of what are some of the differences that are happening every year with New Year's resolutions. And now I get it every year. I just got on someone's mailing list. But it is interesting to see kind of from year to year how our sense of resolutions change. And I know we're in mid-January, and I don't want to beat anybody up, but you know, if you make resolutions, this is a time where you can kind of think about how I'm, I'm doing on those. And the biggest change uh, this year, there, there were two big changes this year. One is the change of the top spot. And this year, the, ch- the top resolution made was to get physically healthy that we're gonna get physically healthy, exercise more, diet, whatever the case may be. And for the last five years, uh, what has been in that top spot has been prioritizing my mental health. And so that's, that's a shift. Mental health is still in, in the top five, but uh, improved fitness took, took over. Um, also, the number was a little bit slightly higher of those that feel pressured to make a New Year's resolution. 62% uh, said that they do feel pressure each year to make a New Year's resolution, but here's the big change. That was only up a little bit. 20% of those that said they felt pressured to make a resolution, 20% of those have any responsibility to keep themselves accountable to achieve their goals. That is a massive drop. The year before, just last year, the number of people that said, when I make a resolution, I feel like I need to be accountable to myself to fulfill those goals was 77%. This year, it's 20%. A massive drop. So, so we have lots and lots of people that are like, well, yes, I'm a goal setter. I make goals. But I feel no responsibility at all <laughs> to achieve any of those goals. I just feel great setting them. And I, 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 re, I feel that a little bit, right? Like, I feel great goal setting. The fulfilling the goals is my problem, right? The, the, and, and the truth is, anybody can make a resolution. Remember the old Seinfeld? Anybody can make a reservation, right? It's keeping the reservation that's tricky, right? This is, anybody can make a resolution, but only 20% said they feel responsible to fulfill uh, their, uh, their, their resolution. Now, now, here's what's interesting about it. of respondents said they are confident they can fulfill their goals. So they set goals. They feel no accountability to those goals at all. But if you ask them, 80% said, I'm for sure making these goals. It's an interesting kind of time that we live in, right? And so the official breakdown of the goals uh, of the resolutions is 48% of respondents said that improved fitness is their number one goal. Like I said, that's the top spot now. 38% said improved finances. 36% said improved mental health. 34% said to lose weight. And 32% said to improve their diet. And the less popular resolutions are traveling more, uh, 6%. You know, yeah, that's always an interesting one. I want more fun. That's my resolution, right? I'm going to have more fun this year. Uh, meditating, uh, 5%. Drinking less alcohol, 3%. And performing better at work is at 3%. And I will tell you, one of the great joys uh, in my life uh, as a minister, one of my great joys is seeing life change. Uh, nothing fires me up more, or few things fire me up more than seeing people's lives changed by Jesus. But the truth is, while resolution is important and meaningful, 
simple willpower rarely is the right strategy, right? This tends to be our strategy at the front end of the year. It's like, um, not according to this study because people don't feel accountable to their goals, but uh, most years, right, the, the, what typically happens is we are going to white knuckle our way to change, so I'm, I'm gonna you know, get fit, I'm gonna lose weight, I'm gonna get my finances in order, and it's simple willpower, but that is rarely the right strategy. We wanna be focused on, these next two weeks, what we're gonna talk about is being focused on and resolved toward the right thing that will lead us to lasting change. The Apostle Paul addresses this with the church in Corinth, and if you remember, uh, we're gonna look at 2 Corinthians 4, we're gonna look at the second book, but if you remember in the first book, uh, 1 Corinthians is kind of a smackdown of this church, right? Paul is just confronting them. Things were a mess in this church, and they weren't changing. They weren't being made new. They actually looked like every other kind of person in their community. They weren't being changed by the gospel. And the theme of 1 Corinthians is Paul is just addressing one issue after another, issue like the church leader controversy is issue number one that the church had fallen into this disagreement over which apostle they followed or admired or listened to. And some said, oh, I follow Apollos. And others said, I, I follow Paul. And if you don't think that this is alive and well in our digital age, I will tell you this is alive and well in our digital age. I was, uh, we went to see some family over New Year's in Savannah, Georgia. And on our way back, uh, we stopped uh, in Atlanta. We were going to go to the aquarium and do some stuff with our kids and uh, we were in, I was in the hotel lobby, and I started to notice that there is an unusual amount of 18 to 25-year-olds in this lobby, like hundreds in, in, in our hotel lobby. And it happened right away. We had gone up to, there was nobody in there. We went to our room. I came back down to handle something at the desk, and all of a sudden the lobby is just full of 18 to 25-year-olds. I was like, what, what is going on here? And so I asked one of them, I, what's going on here? And he said, oh, it's the Passion Conference. And I was like, oh, right, right. The Passion Conference was taking place at Mercedes-Benz uh, uh, Stadium. And it is, if you've never heard of it, it is a gathering of 18 to 25-year-olds in Atlanta every year. And these kids, young adults, excuse me, they engage in Bible teaching and worship over a three-day period. And over the next couple days, I will tell you, I loved my time in the lobby as a 40-something-year-old. It was so encouraging to me. Everyone is so cynical about the young generation. These kids are in this lobby talking about church, talking about spirituality, talking about all this stuff. But one morning in particular, uh, Lila and I went down there to get an early breakfast and we were just kind of sitting there. She was watching some cartoons and I was just kind of sitting there. I noticed a group of uh, young adults off to my right and they started talking about, and, about which preachers they liked best. Uh, who was funny? Who was challenging? Who was likable. And it's not the same thing that Paul is addressing, but this is something our culture struggles with and not just 18 to 25 year olds. We have so much access to preaching. Uh, and and uh, what used to be your preacher of your home church, and that was just kind of the preacher that you had. Now you get to compare that guy, me, to better <laughs> preachers. And it puts people like me in a weird place, right? But we, we get to compare, oh, oh, this guy's funny, this guy's likable, this guy does, and, and we get to kind of compare preaching in a way that we never have before. And like I said, it's not the same thing, but it is a reminder what Paul says to the church in Corinth, that this can become a distraction from what God wants to say to you through a preacher. 
So it is possible for a preacher to be shy or not funny or a bit dry in the pulpit, but God still speaks through his word. And, and if you're consumed with likability or humor or this and that, sometimes you and I can miss the message and our desperation in this culture to be entertained. We are desperate to be entertained. And sometimes we move that over to the pulpit and we think, oh, he wasn't funny or he wasn't likable, or he was a little bit shy, and we totally miss what God wanted to say in that message. And this is Paul's point. The, church, the Christians living in Corinth were missing Jesus and his message. Issue number two, sexual sin. A man was having an affair with his father's wife in the, in the church in Corinth, and the church was celebrating it. Right? They were so proud of their ability to show grace to a man like this that was engaged in this behavior. And before we're too hard on Corinth, we can be this way, can't we? How tolerant we are of sin that, that we miss the point of grace. That grace doesn't just forgive sin. It does do that, but grace doesn't just forgive sin. Grace changes the sinner. And grace that is not leading for a person to be changed, that, that person misunderstands grace in totality, and Corinth had missed it. Issue number three, people in the church were publicly fighting with one another. They were suing one another over their disagreements. And there was a time where we would find this so inconceivable. And then we had a pandemic. And then we had a contentious election cycle. And while the big C church, while we might not be suing one another over our disagreements, unity has been under threat for quite some time. And Paul's point is, it's a distraction from Jesus. You'll find that churches that are not unified Churches that disagree all the time are churches that are full of people that are not changing. They're stuck behind some pet issue and they've lost their focus on the thing that matters most, which is Jesus. Issue number four, this will be the last one. We could actually do this sermon all day, but we're not going to, is communion issues. I say communion issues, yeah, communion issues. The church, the early church used to gather for meals after, uh, as part of their service and as part of that meal, they would receive the Lord's Supper. And what was happening during these meals is some people were coming in, getting, getting seated first and overindulging or overdrinking, getting drunk at the fellowship meal, right? Make, talk about making it awkward, right? And others in the church community were going hungry and not having enough to eat. And Corinth, the Christians in Corinth had just bought into this lie, what I want matters most. If I want seconds or thirds or whatever, what I want matters most, what I want is most important, and it became this me monster. And if you get a chance later today, when you read 1 Corinthians, if you like angry preaching, 1 Corinthians reads angry. Paul is addressing one issue after another. At one point, he actually says, I'm glad I didn't baptize a single one of you. Then I'd be responsible for you. Right? And so he, it reads angry. Paul is addressing one issue after another. And the truth is, this church was distracted. They were off mission. They were misguided. And the result was, this was not a church in Corinth where people were changing or being made new. They looked just like the world around them. The world around them is divided. They look divided. The world around them engages and celebrates sin. They engage in celebrated sin. The, the world around them fights all the time. They were fighting all the time. They looked just like the world around them. They weren't changing. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, he rebukes them hard, and it works. 
right? A lot of change ends up happening, and 2 Corinthians reads a whole lot different. And in 2 Corinthians, he's almost gently reminding them of, hey, don't forget where change happens. Don't forget what's most important. Don't ever get off mission again. And 2 Corinthians, that we're going to be in uh, this week and, and part of next, 2 Corinthians really kind of is seeking to keep them on mission and on purpose, and here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I love this text. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. The gospel, when you read this text, the gospel is the focus for Paul. It is the engine, when you read 2 Corinthians, it is the engine of the train that leads to change. And we tend to think about the gospel, when we hear that word as Christians, we tend to think about the gospel in terms of the forgiveness of sin. And this certainly, Paul alludes to this in this text, the gospel certainly does involve the idea that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. This is a huge part of it. But Paul says in this text, the gospel is also an invitation to a kingdom. It's a kingdom where Jesus, Paul says, is Lord, and he is in charge, and he is in control, and it is a kingdom, because we are ushered into his kingdom, it's a kingdom where we seek his will, his ways, his commands, and we do things his way. The gospel is also a total change of priorities in life, that when Jesus is Lord, as Paul articulates, our goals and our priorities, the way we make decisions, they all change. 
So Jesus and his gospel results in lasting change in the hearts and the minds of everyone who pursues it. And we could go around this room right now. You know, there's not a lot in the room, but we could. Maybe we should do this today, right? Uh, We could go around this room right now and we could tell story after story after story from person that would say, this is how I was and then I met Jesus. This is how I was and then I accepted his grace. This is what I struggled with and then I came into the kingdom. And we could tell story after story after story of how change came as the result of this gospel that Paul is describing. And you can see how following Jesus changes us. We haven't even talked about, we're going to talk about this next week. We haven't even talked about the power of the Holy Spirit yet. Right now we're just talking about the power of the message to change us and make us new, let alone the Holy Spirit being given the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in us to bring about these changes. And Paul understood this better than anyone. You remember his story? Before he was Paul the apostle, he was Paul the persecutor. He was described in the New Testament as being so zealous, and he thought Christianity was a threat to his way of thinking, and so he was so zealous that he kind of decided to do this for a living, to persecute the church, to imprison Christians, because he believed, like I said, they were a threat. And there comes a time where he is on this road to Damascus to go persecute more Christians. And in short, on that road, Jesus saved him. A bright light shone in his face. He became blinded. Jesus confronted him, and Saul became Paul. His name changed, he gave his life to Jesus, and everything was different for Paul. His desires changed. His passions changed. His priorities changed. His decisions were all different. So when he writes to the Corinthians about this is the power of the treasure in jars of clay, this is the power of the gospel. It's not just that your sins are forgiven, although rest assured, your sins are forgiven. It's that you are welcomed into a kingdom with a new king who loves you and will guide you and and send you in the right direction. You are now part of a bigger family called kingdom, and Jesus is the king. When he talks about the change that can come to the Corinthians, he knows what he's talking about because his life, when you think about Paul, his life was totally and radically different from the time he met Jesus forward. So in the text, Paul is reminding them of that there are these reasons why we lose sight of this. There's a reason why we lose sight of the gospel, why we lose sight of Jesus. There are reasons why we stop coming to him and why, and why we stop changing. There are spiritual reasons why a person stops changing over time. And Paul points those out in this text. He says some of them, some of the reasons are, we'll cover like three of them, is that we buy into secret and shameful ways. He's talking about the way false teachers manipulated God's word to trick people into believing a lie or their way of thinking. And here's what he says, they have become deceived. And this is certainly one reason why, as Christians, maybe we stop being changed by the gospel, is that we have bought into a lie. We buy into secret or shameful ways. I don't know if you've ever had this reaction before of watching media any kind of media, and all of a sudden you find yourself watching a show, again, a show again and again, week after week, and all of a sudden you'll find yourself laughing about sexual sin or starting to believe a lie that the only way you can love someone is by unconditionally supporting every decision they make and validating them 
or to begin to think that, man, the people I disagree with, they are my enemy and the object of my wrath rather than someone I should love. And all of a sudden, consuming media uh, to, to, to the degree that we do in this culture, all of a sudden you're like, man, I've started to believe some lies. I've started to believe some lies. I've started to be deceived. I'm buying into secret and shameful ways. I'm not as focused on the truth that is found in Jesus as I should be or could be. Here's how Paul said it to Corinthians. He says, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, right? By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is the goal for a Jesus followers, for, for Jesus followers, the, to, to understand that in him is truth. In him is truth. And so we renounce secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. We don't distort the word of God. We want the truth. We love the truth. We crave the truth. I try not Jack Nicholson and a few good men, but you get the point, right? You want the truth, you can't handle it, right? right? We, we love the truth, right? That it is found in Jesus. Listen to me. Even if it hurts. We love the truth. Even if it hurts. We love the truth. Even if it's countercultural. We love the truth. Even when it makes us uncomfortable. Because we know the truth is where change happens. Where the truth lives is where change lives. And so as Christians, we, not, well, we renounce secret and shameful ways. We do not distort the word of God. We love the truth. So we approach the scriptures. We approach the Bible. Jesus, tell me the truth. Even if it cuts me a little bit, even if it hurts me, even if it makes me uncomfortable, Jesus, I want to know the truth because where truth happens, change happens. Another reason we lose sight of Jesus in his gospel, Paul says, is that we become crushed and we lose heart and we become discouraged, and we stop believing the truth that he is leading us to someplace good, and we start to wonder where he actually is leading us. And you could tell, we could go around this room again and hear story after story of people we know that went through difficult circumstances and it moved them closer to Jesus. Cheryl and I were talking about some people we know on a little mini road trip the other day about people that we know that's like, oh my goodness, the way they suffered The way they suffered, it is so inspiring to me. The way they were faithful, the way they held up the banner of Jesus, so inspiring to me. And we could tell story after story after story. Uh, just Cheryl and I could. We did. In, in, in the car, you remember this person? You remember this person? You remember how brave they were? How faithful they were? How they gave glory to God? In their different, you remember that? And we were telling those stories, but you also know you could go around this, we could go around this room and tell stories of person after person who hit a hard patch or hit a difficult moment and they shook their fist at God in anger. And they were just done with him altogether. And you've never seen them in church again. They've never come back again. They're like, I'm done with Jesus. If this is how he's going to treat me, I'm done. And the truth is this. The choice is yours. And the choice is mine. 
you have a choice in how you're going to respond to the difficult moments of life. It can drive you to your Savior or it can drive you away from your Savior. Here's what I would say to you. Don't come to faith believing that the promise of faith is that you won't have problems anymore. That is not the promise of faith. Actually, the promise of faith is that in this world you will have trouble. The promise of faith is that as you go through trials, as you go through difficulties, God will be with you. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will be with you. The promise of faith is that because he is with you, when you go through hard times, you won't be crushed. You won't be crushed. But instead, you will be changed for the better. I heard, uh, I, I heard an interview uh, uh, earlier this week as I was writing this message of Stephen Colbert, uh, the, the late night comedian. And when he was, I think, 10 years old or, or maybe 12 years old, his dad and two of his brothers died in a plane accident. Uh, and he had several other siblings and his mom was all of a sudden left without her husband and two of her sons, but she had these kids to raise and she just kind of had to plow forward. And he said, this is years and years ago now. And he said, I can look back on that now. He said, I'm not going to tell anyone else how to respond to difficulty, but I can look back on that now and have a measure of gratitude. And Anderson Cooper, who was interviewing him, said, I'm going to be honest with you, that sounds insane. And he said, here's why I say it. It is because I can look and I can see how God used that to change me and make me better. I don't love that I went through it, but I love what God did with it. God made me more empathetic. God made me more compassionate. God gave me an understanding of people. And this is, I don't know where Colbert stands on the gospel, but this is the, this is the power of the gospel. That when you go through difficult times, when you go through challenging circumstances, Paul says, you won't be crushed, you will be changed for the better. And and God can use all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his his purpose. Now, in addition to that, there is hope for the future that all things will be made new. But here's how Paul says it. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, We're not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. The truth is the third reason we become distracted and why change stops happening, the third reason Paul highlights in this text is that the God of this age is trying to blind our minds uh, and our eyes so that we cannot see the light of God. And I know for a few people, um, the idea of the devil or Satan, it sounds weird to them. I I don't know where you're at on this. I believe we have an enemy. But I also believe this, that he who is in you and he who is in me is greater than he who is in our world. So you serve a conquering hero who is leading us to light and life and grace and love and hope. And in him is where change happens. This is what Paul knew and understood. So this is the time of year when we make New Year's resolutions. This is actually, when I wrote this was the time of year we make New Year's resolutions. Uh, now is the time where we break our New Year's resolutions. But at the time that I wrote it, we were making New Year's resolutions a few weeks ago. 
I'm going to start to exercise or lose weight or get healthy. I'm going to read more. I'm going to get my finances in order. I'm going to make some changes. And most of it is behavior management. And listen, there isn't anything specifically wrong with behavior management. We're going to actually talk about it more next week. But true and lasting change happens not when we white-knuckle a change. True and lasting change happens when our thinking is changed, when our desires are changed, and when our hearts are changed. And I have been doing this a long time, and I've seen a lot of change in a lot of different people, and here's what I know that I want to share with you this morning, is that happens by Jesus. Thinking is changed by Jesus. Hearts are changed by Jesus. Desires are changed by Jesus. And Paul had one of the most dramatic changes, maybe in human history, I don't know if I would go that far, but here's what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I resolve, you know what my resolution is? I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew from his life and his time in Corinth that this is Jesus' work. He has the power to change our minds and our hearts and our desires, but our part of it is we have to be resolved to know him. That's our resolution. We have to be resolved to know him. We have to be resolved to worship him. We have to be resolved to obey him. We have to be resolved as this new year starts to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we'll talk about how this happens next week. But supernaturally, the spirit will change your mind through that. Supernaturally, the spirit will change your heart and your desire. The spirit will change everything. Our part of it, our sole part of it, is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and his death on the cross and to know him and to know him to the best of our ability. Go back and read all the changed language of 2 Corinthians 4. That we were blinded by the God of this age, the little g God of this age, but now we see the light of Jesus and we live in the light of Jesus. We were dead, but now we are alive. Outwardly, our circumstances were difficult. Inwardly, we were being renewed day by day. Change language is all over 2 Corinthians 4. And for Paul, it started way back in 1 Corinthians where he said, my resolution, the thing I resolved, was to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he picks up that mantra in our text. I don't know if you noticed it, but here's what he says in our text that we studied today. So, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Maybe, just maybe, someday I'll get the email from that organization that evaluates New Year's resolutions, and maybe, just maybe, I'll see this resolution on that list someday. That it won't just be, I want to lose some weight. It won't just be, I want to manage my money better. It, it won't just be, I want to read more or vacation more, or make more time for me, right? Maybe someday I'll see on the list, I have resolved to know nothing but Christ. 
My eyes this year will be fixed on what is unseen. They will be fixed on Jesus and on his gospel, and I will be forever changed by it. Can you imagine what a day that would be? Where fixing our eyes on Jesus was the top resolution. Fixing our eyes on Jesus was number one because we understand that's where change happens and that's where change lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the day. And I want to pray right now as we get ready to receive communion that this would be a time where we fix our eyes, not on what is seen. Uh, this morning was a time where we were, we were fixated on what we saw and with the cold, what we felt. But right now, we want to fix our eyes on what is unseen. We want to fix our eyes on the eternal. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. And I know, as I'll talk about next Sunday, I know a supernatural movement of your spirit happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. It is how your spirit works. It is how your spirit brings about change. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and the spirit shows up and changes us and makes us new. So right now, we drop every single thing on our mind that is stressing us out or giving us anxiety. And right now, over the next few minutes, we just fix our eyes on you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now. Uh, they're going to pass out the, the cups. One cup has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other cup has some juice representing his blood. And like I said in the prayer, let's just fix our eyes on him. This is where change lives. This is where change happens. We fix our eyes on him, and we watch what the Spirit begins to do as we do that very thing. You can uh, spend a few minutes doing that while they pass it out, and then I'll come back up here, and we'll receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we fix our eyes on you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on you. As we leave this place, we recommit ourselves. We resolve to continue to fix our eyes on you, to know nothing else except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Would you help us to do it? It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And then next week we'll be into part two of this idea of uh, sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, God changed my heart, changed my heart, or God changes a heart, and it's kind of hyper-spiritualized. But it's actually in the Bible... It's not meant to be that way at all. It is no mystery how God shows up and changes a heart. And so if you have a desire to be changed and more patient or more loving or more kind, the, the Bible lays out exactly, you're like, man, this year I just want my heart to be changed. I feel this bitterness or this anger or whatever it is. It is no mystery how it happens, and we'll talk about it next Sunday. So we're really glad that you're here. Uh, thanks for uh, coming out in the cold. Uh, like I said, just grew up in Michigan, not insane. I agree it's cold. So uh, it, it is cold, and we're glad that you're here online. Thank you for worshiping with us as well. Let's stand and close with one last song. If you have a question or prayer request or prayer need, a couple of our elders will be in the overflow immediately after church, and they would love to interact with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you have about faith or Jesus or God. So, hey, we're glad you're here. Happy New Year. I know it's my, it's my first time up here since the New Year, so happy New Year. All right. God bless you guys.